Please take your Bibles in hand and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me make several uh, brief announcements. We do want to ask you to pray for Mr. Tom Dixon. Tom's brother, T. Miller Dixon Jr., passed away yesterday. Uh, Tom, I understand that your brother was in Christ, and we rejoice in that with you, dear brother. Congratulations to Austin and Hannah Clark on the birth of their son, Josiah, who was born this past Monday. And as you can tell, we're uh, celebrating the Lord's table this morning, so be preparing your hearts. Tonight is our monthly missions prayer season in the sanctuary at 5 o'clock this evening. Join us for that, we ask. Our missions pledge cards, you'll find those uh, stuffed inside the Bibles throughout uh, the sanctuary, and we encourage you to make use of those. And then finally, our spring adult Sunday school classes begin today, and on the back of your bulletin, you'll see a list of all of those that uh, are available <clears throat> for us. Let's read the word of the Lord. This is Romans 9, the series in which we continue. Romans 9, let me begin, begin reading in verse 9. Our verses for study are verses 14 through 18. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, as you are the author of these words through the Apostle Paul, we would humble our hearts and we would bend our wills and we would find ourselves bent in humility before you. Now teach us, we ask, proclaim by your spirit to us these both profoundly comforting and discomforting truths. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm holding in my hands one of the saddest and the most grief-inducing pictures that you would ever hold in your hands. It's from February 8th last month, a cover picture on the front of the Wall Street Journal. The context is the, the earthquake in Syria and 
in Turkey in which 50,000 people perished. A father is seated on a concrete slab. His face is drawn, it's blank perhaps. He sits in freezing cold and his left arm is stretched out and he is holding the fingertips of his 15-year-old daughter, Ermac, who was crushed in the earthquake. All that's visible are her fingers and her wrist. Another picture in that same newspaper was of a young child who had died being carried away by a rescue worker wrapped in a blanket. The morning I opened that Wall Street, I sat stunned and stared at those photographs. And many of us as finite creatures would have done what I did on that morning. And I cried out, Lord, why? Lord, why such devastating heartache? And then on deeper reflection throughout that morning, my cry changed. Oh, Lord, why not me? Why was it not me in that picture with my child? Lord, you know that I don't deserve a single one of the least of your mercies nor the smallest of your gifts. Why was that picture not of me? Well, the answer to the question, why not me, is God's answer of sovereign design that flows from our text. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Our text this morning, in fact, this whole section of the Apostle Paul is one of the most instructive and yet the most difficult to grasp and to humbly accept and Paul, by the Holy Spirit, teaches us of these deep truths of election and reprobation. Now, if you have never read through our confession of faith, written in the 1640s by the Westminster Forefathers, it gives a brief summary of these biblical truths, and I commend you to it. Indeed, I urge you to it of election to everlasting life, these fathers of the faith wrote this, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance, he has to them all to the praise of his glorious grace chosen. Of reprobation to everlasting life, we read, or to everlasting death, excuse me, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as it pleases him for the purpose of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. 
Some God hath chosen unto everlasting glory for the praise of his glorious grace, our forefathers say. And others God has passed by to the praise of his glorious justice. Well, before we dive into the text, I want to take you to just two scholars of the Great Reformation whose names you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Listen to them. Luther writes, this doctrine of election and reprobation is not so incomprehensible as many think, but it is rather full of sweet comfort for the elect and for all who have the Holy Spirit. But it is most bitter and hard for those who adhere to the wisdom of the flesh. John Calvin writes, these truths are so deeply humbling to our fatal human pride that they seem almost unbearable. Flesh cannot hear of this wisdom of God without being instantly disturbed by endless questions and without attempting in some manner to call God to account. Well, rather than us calling God to account, let's take ourselves to God's word and have the Lord call us to a humble acceptance of what he has revealed to us in his word. Now, because we're coming to the Lord's table this morning for the sake of time, rather than a number of individual sermon points, I want us to take each verse in succession as our structure this morning, and I want you to be reminded that as the scriptures were authored by the Holy Spirit through the agency of human beings, these truths, as all other truths, flow from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who is very God himself. Read with me verse 14 again. What shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul is recalling the Old Testament story of Isaac and Rebekah and their sons Jacob and Esau. And he's telling us that in order that God's purpose in election might stand... Rebecca was told that the older who should have received the greater inheritance would serve the younger. One God elected and the other God passed by. And Paul anticipates the question in verse 14, is God unjust? Paul is stating a rhetorical question which he answers, but it also invites us, and I invite you this morning, to ask the question yourself. What shall we say? What is our belief about God's ways and his characters? What does our soul say? Is he just or is he a criminal? Do we believe that God is infinitely and only just or not? Despite all of the evil and all of the suffering and all of the injustice in this broken world, do we believe that God is eternally pure in his justice? And do we believe that God is righteous in all of his ways in every moment of time and eternity? And Paul's answer is, by no means is God unjust. And verses 15 through 18 are his argument as to why. Once again, listen to Calvin. It is a monstrous thing in the madness of the human mind 
that we are more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than we are to blame ourselves for blindness. How true. We'll move with me in the second place to verse 15 where Paul takes up the doctrine of election. He writes, For he says to Moses, that is, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. As to the elect, the Lord revealed to Moses long ago that I will have mercy and compassion upon whom I choose. By these words, to Moses and to Israel, God showed that he owed no man anything. He was a debtor to no one, and that all that we receive from the hand of God flows from undeserved mercy and compassion. Now, if you were to go back and look at the context, Paul is quoting from Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. This is the season where Israel had grieved the Lord most egregiously as Moses was on the mountain and they were impatient to wait for Moses' return. And it's the golden calf incident where they had abandoned the favor of God and provoked the Lord to anger. And Moses is pleading for Israel, pleading for God's presence and pleading that God would show him and them his glory. And God responds with those words, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. What are we to understand by God's words to Moses? That the Lord is so high and so holy, so other than us as creator, sustainer, and redeemer, that we as his fellow creatures have no claim upon him whatsoever. And so God assigns to himself his voluntary choice alone, the singular reason for forgiving grace and compassion that anyone receives from his hand. Now, dear believer, let me ask you, why have your eyes been opened to the worth of Christ and to the power of the cross? Is it because there was something good in you that disposed God to you? The answer, according to Paul and according to the Holy Spirit, is a simple no. God assigns to himself this forgiving grace and compassion to give as it pleases him. Young people who are present with us this morning, why is it that you were privileged to grow up in a home with a believing parent or parents, to grow up in a home that was secure against the collapse of an earthquake? Why is it that you have grown up in a home that was not given to abject poverty where you have known nothing of either education or Christian education? Because you have been shown a sovereign mercy that you do not deserve. You see, when we with fallen hearts hear the language, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, we tend to seize upon the sense that God is somehow limiting his kindness. 
But we rightly ought to focus on the I will in God's declaration. I will have compassion and I will have mercy upon those whom I choose. God is no eternal Scrooge in his love. He is the bountiful giver of infinite love. He so loved the world, John tells us, that he gave his only begotten Son. To all of us who are present this morning, I think every one of us needs to learn to repent of our unkind view of the kindness of God. Let me say that again. We need to learn to repent of our unkind view of the kindness of God. Move then with me to verse 16 where the Apostle Paul specifically answers a lingering question that arises in the hearts of his creatures. Is there anything in me, either my will or my deeds, that causes God to be disposed to shower his kindness upon me? And the Holy Spirit answers in Paul, it depends not on human will or works, but upon God who possesses mercy. There's no deserving. There's no particle of willingness or worthiness within us. Nothing about us that moves God to an obligation. Now you and I ought to marvel at this. Again, why are you here this morning? Why are you drawn to the worship of a triune God? Because he has bestowed that desire upon you. We're to be in awe, to be deeply humbled, to be filled with an enduring praise and thanksgiving. Why is there any good in my life? Why have I been shown the face of God in the righteousness of Christ? Pure heavenly love poured from the good pleasure of God. Period. It is not anything in us that brings our election to pass, but altogether only what dwells eternally in the heart of God, a compassionate choice to shower some with mercy. Listen to our Savior Jesus' words in John chapter 6 about this sovereign grace. He says in 637, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives will come, and I will never cast them out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, Paul advances his theological thrust through the Holy Spirit on into verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is Paul's second quote from the Old Testament narratives. It is a parallel that leads us into this grave truth of reprobation. Those whom God passes by unto everlasting death. The biblical story of Moses and Israel under Pharaoh and Egypt's tyranny 
plays out at a human level with great drama and tension and struggle and suffering. But Paul pulls the curtain and takes us back behind all of history to the theological underpinnings of what was taking place. It's from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Pharaoh was raised up by the Lord. Pharaoh was an instrument in the hand of a sovereign God for the redemptive plans of his people. Pharaoh is a theological argument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to show that in addition to the stunning reality of amazing grace, there is also the sobering fact of divine, just, and righteous judgment. God declares to Pharaoh through Moses that he was raised up. Now back in the Hebrew text from which Paul is quoting, the Hebrew word literally means appointed. He tells Pharaoh through Moses that he was appointed sovereignly by the hand of God. That is, he was ordained for a purpose. And that purpose was twofold, that God would show his power over Pharaoh and Egypt, and that the fame of his name would be spread over all the earth. And here we are, several thousand years later, proclaiming the fame of God's name, even now, as God promised he would do. Here in God's own words do we see the ordination of Pharaoh to unbelief, to hardness, to opposition to the Lord, so that his power, his plans, and his praise would be promoted. Now, if I were to take you to Princeton Seminary today, I might show you around to some historical sites, and I might show you some of the great works of her scholars of days past, but I would forbid you from attending there. But there was a day when Princeton Seminary was the heart of orthodoxy. Dr. Charles Hodge was one of those great professors at Princeton Seminary, and he wrote this paragraph, which I think is the finest summary which I've ever read of this portion of Scripture. Pharaoh was no worse than many others who have obtained mercy. Yet God, for wise and benevolent reasons, withheld from him the saving influences of his grace and gave him up to his own wicked heart so that he became more and more hardened until he was finally destroyed. God did nothing to Pharaoh beyond his strict deserts. He did not make him wicked. He only forbore to make him good by the exertion of a special and altogether unmerited grace. The reason, therefore, of Pharaoh's being left to perish while others were saved was not that he was worse than others, but because God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. It was because among the criminals at his bar of justice, God pardons one and not another as seems good to him. He, therefore, who is pardoned cannot say it was because I was better than another, while he who is condemned must acknowledge that he receives nothing more than the just recompense of his sins. Brilliantly written. 
And now we come to verse 18 at the end of our text this morning. Here Paul summarizes in one sentence the essence of the Holy Spirit's teaching through him. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The Lord hardens, the Lord softens, and rightly we ought to add, blessed be the name of the Lord. As Calvin asserts again, he favors with mercy some whom he pleases and unsheathes the severity of his judgment upon whomsoever it seemeth to him good. And so God, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, would have our minds and our spirits humbled and quieted to accept these divine facts. The difference between the elect into grace and the reprobate into divine judgment lies in one cause. And that cause is the divine will of the infinite and eternal God. In his choices of mercy and compassion. One is illumined and enabled to see, another is left in their blindness. One has their heart hardened, their darkened heart hardened, the other, it is made new. One is brought to see that God is worthy of loving tribute of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and another is left to die for the sin of their having believed that they are the only worthy one to live and to be honored and for whom the world ought to revolve around them. And so we are to be humbled beyond measure by this divine majesty. Charles Spurgeon once said of mysterious things, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Do you trust the heart of God? Will we as broken creatures humbly receive this biblical truth? This is not fatalism. This is not puppetry. It is the display of God's infinite majesty and worth. That God's name would be known and magnified in all the earth. Reprobation and election together keep before us this glorious truth of saving grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that it can never be anything but the contribution of Christ, period, that makes me who I am. Election and reprobation in time and eternity redound to the praise of God entirely. God is perfectly just and perfectly gracious. And he will forever, both in time and eternity, be acquitted of all who would accuse him of wrongdoing. Instead of our hearts pointing to an angry, pointing an angry and objecting finger at the chest of God for his supposed unfairness, I submit to you this morning that our hearts ought to melt before an inexplicable kindness that we have been given when there is no reason for us to have received it. What is this kindness? 
that's in the table this morning. That Jesus Christ, by a gracious Father, full of mercy and compassion, has given us Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for his glory alone. Will you join me? Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to this table of invitation, to a feast that is your son, would you give us the faith and humility of heart to receive what you have taught us this morning? Father, if there is any way in which this broken messenger has gotten in the way of your truth, set that aside. And might you, Holy Spirit, be the guarantor that we should believe every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We ask it in Christ's name.